On today's episode of Modern Life Pod, we're covering Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. Which version of Pride and Prejudice, you ask? We are covering all the prides and all the prejudices. I have special guest Anne to help me get through them all. You can find her at Contra Perry Chat on Twitter. And you can also find her as the co-host of the Red Light Library Erotica podcast. All that information will be down below in the description box. She can also be found as a guest host on the Spooktember podcast. Just wanted to let you know that we have a new website. Very exciting for us. It's really easy to remember. It's just modernlivepodcast.com. And you can also search all our episodes for different categories. If you just want to listen to our video game podcast or our show podcast, it's really easy to sort through it now. And also, if you want to reach out to us, you can always do so at modernlifepod. That is on Instagram and Twitter, and also modernlifepod at gmail.com. Let's get on with the show. Alrighty, hi Anne, thank you so much for joining me today, and we're going to be talking about Pride and Prejudice, the book, the movies, the shows, everything. Um, but before we get started on that, Anne, what's your modern thought? What's been on your mind lately? Alright, so I've been playing this video game lately, uh, and it's a pretty short game. I haven't finished it yet, so if anyone's played it, don't tell me what happens. Uh, it's called Plague Tale Innocence. And oh, we have a podcast on it. Oh, yes. Awesome. Yeah, I just, I think we're so, I'm so close, so close to finishing it. But it's I loved been, it. Do you love it? I love it. I went and I, um, since it's set in France, I purposely went out of my way to put the audio in French. And then have that, that was going to be my next question. What what language you're playing it in? <laughs> uh, I I just I wanted it to be in French because it's in France and it's adorable mm -hmm. and not a dig against the English voice actors or anything. It was just I'm in France during the Hundred Years War. I want to be listening to French. Like my only critique, and it's kind of weird, and I know that it would be just really hard to do, is that I wish that the English soldiers. We're speaking in English. Yes, that was confusing to me as well because, um, and I think we mentioned this on the podcast too, because when you play the game in English, those soldiers have um, different accents. They have British accents. So it was strange that in the German and in the French version, they didn't copy that in any way. So it was a little disorienting because at first I was like, oh, where are these soldiers from? And it's a lot easier to place them when you when you hear the accent. So I, I totally agree with you on that. And Anne is kind of like a Middle Ages expert what what else about the game do you absolutely love or what else do you find a little inaccurate or what's your take on it uh not so much inaccurate but things that i love absolutely love about it are the items you can pick up and the just the oh, little yes. bits and the fact that there's like all this alchemy going on i love that so much and i love the herbarium hugo's herbarium where he picks up the flowers and talks about them. I love that so much. Yep, we we love that too. <laughs> and I guess if I 
if I had one critique at all, and it's not even a critique because it fits perfectly with her character and who she is and everything, Amicia wearing the, I keep thinking leggings like yoga pants, but they're not yoga pants. My my mind has gone at the moment. Hose. Amicia running oh. around in hose and her little Should she tunic. be wearing like a dress instead? I mean, as a young noblewoman, yeah, she uh. should be. But because she has been raised the way that she was and considering the situation that she is in, it makes no sense for her to be wearing a dress. So I like, gotcha. I don't care. I'm good with this. That's fine. Uh, now, I w- now I wish you'd been on that podcast with us. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I haven't finished the game yet. <laughs> I'd be like, no, don't tell me. Don't tell me what happens. Don't tell me what happens. <laughs> so my modern thought is actually also about the Middle Ages. Uh, oh. <laughs> are you familiar with the YouTube channel Modern History TV? Yes, yes. I've just started watching some of the stuff. Oh, how funny. <laughs> that is so weird. Yeah, it's just just for our listeners, it's just this guy who's really kind and humble and passionate about the Middle Ages. And he's really into it. He's got costumes, horses. Um, some of the videos that I loved are, for example, the ones about teeth in the Middle Ages. Because mm-hmm. there's always, always this stigma that people had uh, terrible dental hygiene. And he explains that because of miasma and because bad smells were seen as a source of disease without them knowing what bacteria actually is, having bad breath and bad teeth would actually not fly at all during the Middle Ages. Um, and one of the things they used to uh, or sanitize our mouths was clove oil. And I actually just bought uh, like a remineralization toothpaste that has clove oil in it. Because I was like, oh, yeah, that, that actually works. So I, I just found that really interesting. But he's got a ton more videos out there. Yeah, the one that I really liked was um, him making uh, rush lights out of rushes. Oh, yes. And there's something so wonderful. And that's really good. And I remember seeing this with um, historical like reenactment and uh, hairstyles and things like that, where when someone actually goes out and tries to do the thing that they read about, when they try to do something with their hands, with the physical materials, they learn so much more in a way that it's, uh, hey, I know how to recreate this now. Like this might be how it worked. It might not be perfect, but there is a really wonderful element to learning the practical way of doing something. Like you learn so much that way. He has so many videos too, where he's just analyzing tapestries and pictures of people wearing armor and weapons on horses. But then he goes to actually try that. And he's like, well, with this saddle, this doesn't work. And the sword is poking the horse on this side. And like you think, about it and it wouldn't be a big deal but then when he's actually trying it out there's so much to think about logistics wise and then it's interesting to watch him kind of figure it out and kind of retrace those steps and try to explain all these things that weren't explained before because people assumed it was normal you know and so now as in the modern age we're kind of like well how did that work so yeah the practical aspect you're right is really i think is what makes that channel so interesting yeah there's um i forget 
who it is. I know that she's a hairstylist, but she does these uh, reconstructions of hairstyles from antiquity, so Roman and Greek hairstyles, and she does these reconstructions. And it's amazing because she uses needle, thread, scissors, and she's just goes through it and explains like, here's how you could reconstruct this elaborate hairdo that you found on this piece of like statuary. And it's fascinating. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but I think we're ready to dive into the main topic. Yeah. So going all the way from medieval period to Regency England, <laughs> we're, we're skipping quite a, quite a gap. <laughs> Yeah, when my brother asked me, oh, what what topic are you actually doing? And I was like, oh, Pride and Prejudice. And he's like, oh, of course you are. And I was like, I didn't even say anything. Like, I didn't choose this at all. <laughs> it's like, it wasn't me, I swear. <laughs> I mean, it's so interesting that, I mean, because we both met each other, I suppose, in a way, because of the podcast Heaving Bosoms. And yes, and I will which, definitely link that as well for the listeners, because everyone should be yeah. listening to it. Which, for listeners, it's a romance novel podcast where two friends uh, discuss the romance novel that they've read over the week, two weeks, whatever period. And one of the biggest parts of historical romance, like one of the biggest subgenres in the subgenre is regency romance <laughs> like that's so huge and i think so much of it comes from jane austen and in particular mm -hmm. pride and prejudice <laughs> yeah so while we're talking about this i we don't really have a format we're going to talk about all the different movies shows and books but we're just gonna kind of be all over the place um i'm guessing most people are familiar with the story but as Anne already said, it's written by Jane Austen. The working title for it was First Impressions, and it tells the story of the Bennett family. They have five daughters and no male heir, and therefore must get all the daughters married off. And it's about all the crazy things that happen along the way for this family. Yeah, and it's important to note that they're a genteel country family, and they're not poor, but they definitely don't have the money or the resources to support five daughters. They need to get married and someone has to marry rich. Yeah, that's it's interesting because the versions are very different with that. In some of them, they're less poor and some of them, they're more poor. But no matter what state you live in, it's, it's all going to go away, right? As soon as the dad dies. Yeah, the, even if they were extremely rich, like Sense and Sensibility, for example, it's all going away because there's no male heir. It's, it's the anxiety that these women have where they know that every they could lose everything as soon as dad dies. And that it's like, we need to find a situation, we need to find stability, and that there's a sense of desperation there that some of them cope with better than others, I think. So how do you feel about the mom? Because I think she's the driving force behind all that, and she's the one who's kind of the most hysterical and adamant about it all. It's funny, because the thing with Mrs. Bennett is that she is 
very silly in some ways. She's very obsessed with uh, rank, privilege, uh, money, and everything. But you also understand her plight. Like, you get that she's a very silly woman who kind of gets hysterical and carried away. But you also understand her very well and understand her situation. That it's uh, it's so unstable. And so even though she has these wild kind of almost fantasies of like how everyone is just plotting against them and uh, all that, you do understand her because sometimes it feels that way. I Yeah, there's this interesting um, interview with the actress who played her in the Kara Knightley version where one of the reporters was asking her, oh, but how do you feel? about the mom she's so crazy like she's the worst character and she was very defensive about it and she said yeah but she's the only one who really understands and takes seriously what's really going on and i i agree with that i think it's just the way she goes about it and the things she says about her daughters and how she only she says out loud how she only likes some of them she's not very educated i I, i'm totally on darcy's side when he's like yeah your family doesn't act in an appropriate way so i think it's just her her behavior but it's i think her intentions are definitely fine and true yeah i think most of the time her heart is in the right place and If we go to the Colin Firth version of Pride and Prejudice, there's this beautiful scene where she like she's like, settle down. Five more minutes will do the trick. Because she's like, no, Jane and Mr. Bingley need to have time alone to work through their shit. And Lizzie's like, yeah, Lizzie's like, no, no, I promised I'd stay with Jane, and she's like, stay where you are. (laughs) And it's a it's kind of a clue of Mrs. Bennett knows what's up in some situations. She's the one who like really gets it. <laughs> but that version is kind of hard for me to rewatch sometimes because of the mom, because the <gasps> actress is so shrill and has so many lines and it's, she's doing such a fantastic job, but sometimes I'm just like, Oh, I can't deal with it right now. I'll like do the 10 second skip through it. <laughs> you know, the one scene that I, because this was that was the version. BBC Colin Firth version was the first thing, the first time I ever encountered Pride and Prejudice, and I was a child. I was a baby. Oh, really? And yeah, this is this is the movie that like my family watches, like not even movie TV series. We watch this on the holidays. We quote this version to each other. Oh, that's so great. Uh, so. <laughs> Like it's Pride and Prejudice is one of my father's favorite books. Like he talks about when he went on summer vacation when he was 13 years old on a road trip and he decided I'm going to be an educated man and be a man (laughs) and read classics. And I'm going to read all the classic books, all the classic literature. I'm going to read it in alphabetical order all summer long. And uh, the first book that he picked up was Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice because he classified it as Austen Jane Pride and Prejudice. Oh my God, that's a great story. And he loves it. He loves it so much. He just, nothing compares. (laughs) Pride and Prejudice is like his favorite Austen book, one of his favorite books. (laughs) Um, And BBC Pride and Prejudice is like one of his favorite things. Oh, uh, that's lovely. What, wait, 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 which one is your favorite Austin book? Uh, Have you read all of them? 
I have, I mm-hmm. think, because I love Pride and Prejudice. It's mostly my favorite, but I also really love Emma. Because Emma is like the worst. And she also improves. That's what your dad just reminded me of. You know when Emma put, like, she puts together that list of like 100 novels to read, but then she never actually reads any of them, like your dad did. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's so, so much. Yeah, except my dad is like, he's a really slow reader, but my God, he tried his best. (laughs) He really did. (laughs) But, um... Like with the BBC version, the one thing that makes me go like, okay, I need to, I need to leave. I just need to be gone for like 10 minutes and I'll come back. The Netherfield ball when everything goes chaotic and it's like the the next day Bingley leaves (laughs) kind of thing. Like that whole scene. I'm just like, I'm going to go make tea in the kitchen (laughs) with my headphones on. So I can't hear any of this. Uh, but that scene in the Kira Knightley version is, I think, one of the best examples of cameras following characters and just the choreography of it all. I, I could just watch that scene and how you'll follow one character and then you'll go into the next room and then follow another character and then back you're back to where you started and just trying to organize all that. Yeah, I, it's, it's just incredible. It's a beautiful... I don't know, um, visual show of the absolute chaos that's going on. Because <laughs> it's like, yeah. oh, okay, let's go here. Maybe it's better here. Nope, it's not. Let's go over here. Up, oh, still bad. <laughs> and then you have like Mrs. Bennett eating pudding or something, and then she just throws the spoon behind her. And she's, <laughs> somebody has it like on his jacket. <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, it's chaotic. Absolute chaotic mess. Which is kind of what it is in the book. It's like, oh no. Elizabeth is like, oh god, oh god, please no one see this. But everyone saw it. And also what I find interesting about that, the Kira Knightley version, is that they have Mary fall in love with the cousin. I, how do you feel about that? Did you get that vibe from the book? Because I never got that vibe from the book. And I don't mind the change either. But It's strange. Uh, Mr. Collins... Yeah. Yeah. What's weird is that I didn't really get that vibe from the book. I got it from the BBC version and the Kira Knightley version. Uh, because in BBC version, uh, Mary's always kind of sticking up for Mr. Collins. of like, I think it's very nice of him to come and talk with us. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's more overt in the Kira Knightley version. But I think it's there in the BBC version as well. She's just like, I thought he was nice. <laughs> I just don't see them making a good couple. Oh, no. I, I don't know. No, 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 <laughs> okay. no, no. Oh, they'd be terrible. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Mary and Mr. Collins would have worked out <laughs> at all. <laughs> and and Mr. Collins is one of those characters that some people really like. But the first time I read the book, I actually started skipping through his dialogue. Because I found him so insufferable, especially later on when he sends that letter and he's like, oh, it would have been better if Lydia had died, but unfortunately she ran off with a man. And you're just like, oh. And you're forever a- disgraced. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Mr. Collins is, I mean, I think it's, again, it's a pleasure to watch someone play Mr. Collins so well. Because he's insufferable and horrible and just like... He's not 
vicious. He can be a little mean sometimes, like mean-spirited, but uh, he's not like some kind of brute, but he's just awful. Like you just get like a, you twinge an embarrassment when you see him. Tom Hollander, who's just a phenomenal actor. I think he plays him so well in the Keira Knightley version, especially when they have that dance and he's just so like, awkward and his body won't move right and you yeah, just, just feel like kind for of stepping <laughs> yeah oh god <laughs> yeah i do however love um ricky collins in the lizzie bennett diaries mm-hmm. in the youtube series i i thought he was very sweet and just also the modern adaptation of making making the proposal a business proposal in that show i thought was so clever and i did not see that coming at all yeah, I felt that was like, because in a way, the way that he presents the marriage proposal in the original work is more like a business proposal than a marriage, yeah. where he's just That's like, true. you see, this would be really good for your situation and my situation. I think we'll both be happy with this. Also, my boss thinks it's a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, what the hell, dude? Uh, I just still, I I still feel bad for Charlotte. Like I I can never get over it that she had to marry him. And there's that brilliant scene that Emma Thompson um actually guest wrote that scene on the swing, where Charlotte comes up and tells her, and she's like, "Don't you judge me, Lizzie. Don't you dare judge me." And it's it's brilliant. And I think she wrote that so well. And you totally understand why this character has to do this. Because even, yeah. even I mean, her dad is uh, nobility, right? He's like, sir, something, something. And even she has, she's a lady, so she has to get married somewhere. Yeah, I mean, her dad was knighted. And pretty much all that she has is she has to rely on her father and her brother's charity. If, uh, if she doesn't get married and she just, she doesn't want to burden them with that. It, her actions make perfect sense. It's very reasonable, and you just feel so bad for her. <laughs> like, okay, confession. This is like my secret fanfic dream that I've I've never written, never dared write it because I'm like I'm not good enough to do this. I dream that Mr. Collins is in a horrible accident. You know, he isn't murdered or anything. He just dies somehow accidentally. And then Charlotte goes off and marries Colonel Fitzwilliam. Oh! The end. I, l- <laughs> I love Colonel Fitzwilliam. He's I love such him a so good much. guy. Yeah, he's just, he's such a nice person. And I'm like, oh, darn it. I like you, dude. I really <laughs> like you. Like, you're cool. When it comes to the Bollywood adaptation, Brian <gasps> Prejudice, you've oh, seen gosh, that one, yes. right? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> the, the change they made between not just having the class difference between Lizzie and Darcy, but also talking about colonialism because he is American and she's Indian, and him staying at fancy hotels in India, he thinks he knows what India is like. I, and just the commentary that in her lines and dialogue that she has about that topic, I, I found absolutely phenomenal. I was like, yes, this is so appropriate, especially for Jane Austen's story. And if this were set in a modern day, like Jane, you know, Jane Austen would have written it like that. Yeah, having that element is just so good. It really kind of 
shows how versatile uh, Pride and Prejudice and really any Jane Austen work mm. is, that you could adapt it anywhere and like maintain the core values and understandings of it while also bringing in new elements and saying like, yeah, we could talk about this. This fits in with the theming of Darcy being very proud and not being very sympathetic, but also being willing to learn and change. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, that's such an important key aspect of his character that it's like, he isn't so blind to himself that he could realize when he's fucked up and he's like, Oh God, I fucked up. Okay. I, I need to make things right. Bright and Prejudice is one of my favorite adaptations. <laughs> oh God. Just the dances and the colors and the no life without wife song, the yeah. like slumber party song. I love it. <laughs> so, so my, um, my friend and I, like she actually, every once in a while, we'll do these road trips, just drive off go camping somewhere go visit national parks whatever and she has the uh the bridal party song the um bali bali the uh yeah 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 kites without strings she has that and so as soon as the drum beat starts up we like (laughs) we lose it (laughs) and we're, we're just like absolutely losing our minds in the car while driving down some highway like people must think we're insane oh man I sh- i'm gonna listen to that on the way to work now <laughs> oh it's so, so good. good oh and indira varma is in it too as the sister and i just i love her i love her so much oh, she's, she's so always good. great one of the things i really loved that um some people think it might be a very drastic change but i thought it worked really well was combining mary and kitty as a character so that way it was four sisters instead of five because yes. it really worked. It it was strange how well it worked because you kind of sometimes you get lost in the shuffle of oh well, okay one two three four five yep they're all there <laughs> and having Mary and Kitty together it was a very interesting dynamic of it was interesting to have the contrast between very bookish Kitty who's kind of timid and she like wants to be the good influence but she's also like okay fine Kitty you do whatever you want. <laughs> Or like find Lydia, do whatever you want, and then Lydia right. being the bossy party girl. Yeah, no, I I'd read the book actually very late. Uh, I think I was twenty five, and I hadn't seen any any of the movie versions or anything. So the book was my first entry into this. And as I was reading it, I was mentally thinking, oh, if I were to make this into a movie, I would get rid of one of the sisters. But n- no version really ever does, except for that one and. Lizzie Bennet Diaries. But I also thought the same thing with Sense and Sensibility. And there are, there's a 70s version that actually doesn't have the youngest sister, Margaret, in it, mm-hmm. which is totally fine if you're pressed for time. She doesn't really do that much. So, yeah, I totally agree with you about combining the characters. Yeah. And also, something that's really great about these modern adaptations is they let you can have room for Lydia to get away from Wickham. Like in the Lizzie Bennet Diaries and in this one, they're able to rescue her and save her. Whereas in the books and, you know, in period drama, the only solution is for her to marry him. And I always find that kind of sad because he's just such a terrible guy. And in the book, it says they just keep asking them for money. Like they're never in a good place throughout their, their entire lives. And it just, I can't be like, oh, that's what 
Lydia got what she deserved because she's so young and because she hasn't been trained by her parents to be cautious of that kind of thing. I always, I always feel bad for Lydia. Yeah, it's Lydia's 16. She's 16 and dumb, but she's like a young 16. She's just turned 16. And she just, she has been spoiled by her mom and ignored by her dad. And that's one of the things I actually, weirdly enough, love in a, the BBC Pride and Prejudice, where it's clear that it's like, okay, she's spoiled by mom. Dad kind of ignores all of his uh, kids, unless it's Lizzie and Jane. Otherwise, he's like, oh, whatever. They, they just do what they want. And it's kind of like chickens come home to roost for these guys, where it's, uh, yeah. yeah, you spoiled your daughter, and you decided to just let it be. You decided, oh, my work here is done. <laughs> like but but you didn't do anything (laughs) yeah especially with their educations you know especially when um Catherine de Berg asked Lizzie oh didn't you have a governess and so on and so forth they couldn't afford it but also you get the feeling that if the kids didn't reach out on their own to try to be educated there wasn't a push from the parents there wasn't an involvement from the parents oh yeah definitely not it is really interesting to look and like say in my case, since I've grown up with Pride and Prejudice so much, it's so interesting how your perception changes as you grow older. Uh. And, you know, as a kid, you're always, you're, I was always like, oh, wow, this character's funny and this character is whatever. And then the older you get, the more nuanced they become and the more you appreciate them. Yeah. Like uh, how my impressions of Mrs. Bennett changed as I grew older and kind of learned more about uh regency england society at that time understanding that it's like yeah she has serious like issues she understands what's going on and that uh my impression of mr bennett grew more nuanced as well where it's like yeah okay i i get him more i understand him i'll always appreciate his sarcasm and dry humor because that's very much what i find entertaining but I also get mad at him because it's like, yeah. dude, you did this. Like you are to blame too in all of this. Like the one person who is really innocent almost is, uh, oh gosh, no one really is except for, well, I guess Georgiana's innocent. She was 16, <laughs> but, um, yeah. And it's like everyone kind of has their own culpability and that that's why Wickham gets away with shit. <laughs> the only one who really is like, okay, yeah, this is my fault. I'm taking care of it is Darcy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, not even the mom cares. It's like she just turns around right away. <laughs> She's yeah. like, yeah, your uncle should pay for all this stuff and uh, everything's great now. It's like, no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's just the, well, of course your uncle should pay off the debts. Who would pay off debts but your own uncle? Mother! (laughs) (laughs) But it's, um, yeah, there's so many amazing aspects of Pride and Prejudice that it's fascinating to see how they change, how they develop, how people do adaptations, where people, almost in some ways, they think that they've got it, and then it's like, "Mm, I don't know. One of the things that bothered me with the Kieran Knightley version 
And I always feel bad about it because I was like, everyone did a really good job. They really did. <laughs> but one of the things that bothered me, and it was so weird, is that the Bennets have a happy marriage in a way. And it's kind of like, hmm. Like the point was that they don't really. And it's like, this is why Elizabeth is like, I don't want to get married. Because she's like, she constantly sees every day the evidence of uh, my dad was hasty in his marriage. He married someone who he thought was pretty and their tempers don't suit each other. And that she sees this example all the time. And then she sees the example of her aunt and uncle, of Mr. and Mrs. Gardner, of like a really well-matched pair where these two get each other. And she's like, I want that. I don't want what my parents have where they're just constantly needling each other and getting on each other's nerves. And so I thought that was such an important part of the, I don't know, just the the dynamic and understanding why Elizabeth is like, I don't want to get married unless I truly love someone. That's interesting. I'd never, you're totally right about that, but I never, that had never occurred to me watching it. Yeah, hmm. it's, yeah, it's this one line that was done in the BBC version and in Bride and Prejudice, it's done brilliantly where the mom is like very dramatic and the dad's just like, oh God, please stop. And just like a very quiet dude. Uh, but it's this one line in the BBC version where Elizabeth says very sarcastically, because um, Jane says, well, a marriage where either party doesn't truly love each other, that well, that can't be happy. And Elizabeth just rolls her eyes as we have daily proof. Yep, that is a really good line. And it's I just always like, remember that line. Yeah, where it's like Jane's just trying to very gently say like, well, I'd like to marry for love, but I know that since I'm the prettiest and have the sweet disposition and everything, it's going to be me who has to marry for money. <laughs> Which she does. Yay! Yeah, the way the way Jane and Bingley get together is another thing I thought was a really cool change in the Lizzie Bennet diaries, where they finally talk about everything at the end, but it's everything's not okay right away, you know. And yeah. Jane's like, "Well, we yes, we're moving to the same place, we're moving to New York, but we're getting separate apartments, and we we can start from fresh, but we're not leaving off where we were before." Like we can't go back to that because of what you did and how you abandoned me, and that I was I wasn't expecting that at all from that version. I was just so happy that they were back together, and I was like, oh yeah, no, that would make sense. Yeah, that's one of my mom's biggest complaints about Pride and Prejudice, and it's so funny to hear her talk about that because she gets so mad because she's just like, he left her, he left her. He just is like, oh, okay, because someone else said. It's like, <laughs> she's like, Jane doesn't deserve that. She deserves better. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> oh, mom. <laughs> it's like, Jane defense squad. <laughs> Justice for Jane. <laughs> and it's like, Bingley is a good dude, but he is very easily led. And it is nice that in the Lizzie Bennet diaries that Jane's like, yeah, you hurt me. You hurt me pretty badly, so mm -hmm. I'd like to give it another shot, but we need to be apart. <laughs> like, we need that little yeah. bit of distance to work through that. So another um, adaptation choice that varies from version to version is Darcy's letter. 
Um, the <sighs> worst example of this is the 1980s version. It's free on Amazon, but I don't think you've seen it. And I, no, it's no, no, not that great. Um, <laughs> Tell but me it, all about it. <laughs> it's, so what happens is he walks up, but like. I don't like this Darcy at all. I'm sorry I'm hating on this, but every period drama from the 80s is always terrible. I don't know why. <laughs> like It was just a dark age for period drama. Hair, hair, hair. <laughs> yeah, because in the 70s period drama, you at least have like the big hair and you're like, oh, it's ridiculous, but it's still fun to watch. And I oh, don't yeah. find 80s period drama, like I don't find anything enjoyable about it. But she just... The, the shot is of her sitting on a rock reading this letter and Darcy just walking away and just footage of him walking through the grass and she reads the entire letter. There's voiceover for the whole letter and it is the longest scene of nothing happening. It, it's uh. just so agonizing because in the BBC version, what I love about that is the flashbacks and oh, you're yes. reenacting, you know, Darcy's finding them at the in and then also in the Kira Knightley version that letter is cut very very short and it totally works and all you see is him riding away through the forest and, and you get all the info that you need so yeah. in both those versions I find one being longer and one being shorter I find it brilliant how each of them did that in yeah. a way that communicates to viewers who aren't familiar with the book exactly what you need to know yeah what's so great about I think both versions, because you are limited with the time space you have in a movie. So cutting the letter down is important. So that way you save on time, so that way you can put that time to other places. So it's like, yep, I get that. I understand you did the best with what you had, and I appreciate what you've done. Because it's like, cut it as short as you can, let him ride through, you get the message of what this is. And what I love about the BBC version, besides the flashbacks, is that the first half of the letter, is it's all focused on Darcy, where he's talking about, this is what Wickham did to my sister. Like, and this is like, it was the worst summer of my life. And then I met you. <laughs> and it just goes through everything that it's, and it's all focused on him, everything. And then we go to when he gets the, gives the letter and then you get the, those are my dealings with Mr. Wickham. You could go and talk to Colonel Fitzwilliam who knows all the particulars of this situation. If you want to uh, want to like, you know, confirm everything I said. And then he goes on and you're with Elizabeth the rest of the time while she reads what he did to Jane and how he did Jane dirty and how she just <laughs> gets pissed. And it's like, Oh, this is so good. Because it goes from the Darcy where it's like, oh, oh, man, he has some serious beef with Wickham. I get this. This is painful for him. Oh, man, this is I feel so bad for Darcy. I didn't know this about him. And then we get to Elizabeth and we're just like, you son of a bitch. How could you do this? And so it's like, oh, the cut between the two. The two parts of the letter are so good. It's, oh, it's so good. I'm I'm still on Darcy's side. I'm I'm sorry. I'm evil, but <laughs> but like he he genuinely didn't know if Jane loved Bingley. All he hears is the mom saying, "Oh, we finally caught like this, you know, big rich guy." Yeah, like, big fish. yeah I would I would probably go to my friend too and be like, "Dude, you gotta get out of here. Like, we gotta go." Like, oh yeah, <laughs> it's um, I think it's because you're you're with. 
Elizabeth for so long and you know Jane and you know how good she is in her heart and that she would never do this. She wouldn't dream of it. Like that's the kind of nightmarish thing a monster would do. Jane would never. And so it's like, you're like, Jane would never do that. How dare you? But um, then you go to Darcy and you're like, yeah, he's seen this all before. Like he's like, nope, gotta protect Bingley. Yeah. <laughs> like he's a dumbass. <laughs> like I gotta save him. <laughs> but uh I always find it funny. And it's a very strange thing. But uh Darcy, the shyest man ever, who cannot dance with a stranger, because it's just that that's just too much, doesn't recognize a fellow shy person. Like, he doesn't Ugh, realize mm. that Jane is also shy. <laughs> and it's like, mm. Darcy! <laughs> That's a hard take. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I love, and it's it's both adaptations are just so brilliant in showing, well, not both, but all different adaptations. I always love how every guy who plays Darcy does a different way of portraying the shyness. Hmm. Where Colin Firth, it's like he walks over to a window. He's like, ah, yes, the window. The window is much more interesting than whatever is going on and out out behind me in the building. I'm going to look outside now. And that's like his move. And so everyone thinks, oh, he's being a dick. He doesn't want to talk to people because he thinks he's so high and mighty. Well, you totally get after you realize he's shy. The internal monologue is, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) But then in the Kira Knightley version, it's kind of like he's just a, all right, okay, I I could do this. I could do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. (laughs) And he kind of just goes like really stiff and like, nope, nope. (laughs) and then Pride and Prejudice what I really loved some how it's just it's the intermingling of he's a little awkward and shy plus complete culture shock right right and so and he's, he's trying to do the dance when they have the sticks and he's like trying to do the dance oh yeah it's like adorable. he's just like I don't I don't know what to do what am I doing <laughs> and it's uh, everything about it is like Every time I see something, it's like, yep, every Darcy comes up with something different to to show that they are shy and don't know what they're doing. And I love every single one of them because they're all valid. <laughs> I feel that way about Bingley. Like, I have my favorite Darcy's, but the Bingley's are always great. I always love them. Especially the, oh, I think this came out in the 2000s. It was Pride and Prejudice, the later day comedy or something like that. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that one? I, don't, I haven't seen that one. Oh my gosh. Oh my god. Uh, Bingley this is going to be fun. Just like, I'm just going to write down every single Pride and Prejudice version that I've missed. <laughs> he's he's like this rich kid, but he's he has these great dreams. So he makes um, like soothing soundtracks for dogs that you can play for your dogs. And it's just <gasps> so nerdy and like terrible and oh my god all his outfits are ridiculous there's this scene where he's like playing tennis with the girl who plays jane and he he just has these baggy like tennis things on it i can't describe it it's just so funny to watch and it's one of the greatest comedic performances by any bingley ever i just (laughs) love that bingley probably my favorite bingley even though it's not even that great of a movie (laughs) it's just so funny oh no it's bingley's are always 
they're treasures. They're like little puppy dogs that you're just like, oh, oh, you poor thing. You're just too <laughs> dumb to realize things. We need to protect you. Also, the little detail when he rides off in the carriage with uh, Caroline in the Kira Knightley version. <gasps> and you can tell it's the, it's the next morning, like they didn't even sleep. And she's all dressed up, like she's ready to go. And they didn't shave him. Like he's got the morning stubble. I yes. love that. It's just like showing how he's like really not cool with this, but he's just trying to, he like doesn't trust his own judgment. Ugh. Yeah. That's, um, that's something that's always interesting with uh, Bingley and the Darcy relationship where it's uh, Darcy doesn't really make friends. He's not good at it. And then Bingley is just so good at it. Like he's just so amiable, such a nice person. And, he clearly he could see the good in Darcy that he's a good guy, and Darcy's just like Bingley's too nice. He needs like he becomes the guard dog because he's just like yeah. <laughs> Bingley's too nice. He would just you know give away everything to help people, and he's my friend. He's like one of my only friends. I have to protect my friend, and it it really. It speaks to Bingley's character of he's a good person who sees the good in everyone. And it speaks to Darcy's character of he is a good person who's just like, he will be absolutely cutthroat in defense of his friends. <laughs> it's like, ah, these good people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bingley's such a Hufflepuff. <laughs> yes, it's a, Darcy is the Slytherin. I mean, it's kind of weird because... He could either be a Slytherin or a Ravenclaw. He's like kind of between the two. That it's like at points he has these Slytherin moments of like absolute cutthroat, get business done. Yeah. And then at other times it's like you realize, huh, he's more of a Ravenclaw. He's like interested in reading. He goes fishing, which was considered the contemplative sport in Regency oh, really? England. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's uh, it's kind of one of those weird things that you read in the book, and then like, because he goes and he talks about how like we can go fishing and we go fishing all the time, and fishing was considered this sport that is like it takes all day. You might not catch anything, but you have a lot of time in the quiet in nature to reflect on everything in life and just the world, all that. So it's this contemplative, meditative sport. Anyone can go and get a gun and go hunting. It takes a certain personality to go fishing. Interesting. And so that's one of the ways that in the book Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen kind of reveals more and more of Darcy's character when we don't really know much because it's all from Elizabeth's perspective. Because we learn more about Darcy as like, huh, he likes to go fishing. He has these woodlands that have been clearly in his family for hundreds of years. And... It's like like these woods, they're called like a coppice wood. Essentially, it's these kind of woods that they're slow-growing gro trees. And it's like, oh, he hasn't cut all of them down for lumber. Like he's like actually maintaining these woodlands. And it's like cutting down the faster-growing ones, replanting all that, and maintaining it. And it's like, he's interested in permanency and lasting and stability, because we don't we don't know much about Darcy because he's an outsider. Most Austin heroines are the good old boy from home. 
and Darcy is the outsider who comes in. So we learn so much about Darcy from where he lives. This insight is fascinating. I would have never <laughs> known any of this. It's, it's something that I like didn't know for a long time. It was something that I was like, huh, that's really weird. And then looking back and realizing, oh, this is what these mean. Like a lot of things are revealed about Darcy in odd ways that you normally don't get in an Austin book because most of the time in an Austin book, the heroine and the hero know each other. Right? I uh-huh. always, I always love how uh, Austin heroes. It's like, huh, this guy is really charming, and that's suspicious. That's very suspicious. <laughs> like you should be careful about a charming man. <laughs> like go with this guy who's really awkward and will give you an umbrella. Right. <laughs> he knows what's up. That's <laughs> mm, true. <laughs> Um, some of the next note I have here is about the Meriton Ball, especially the scenes that they've used in the Kara Knightley version, because it feels so organic. Unlike any of the other ones, there's the dances don't feel very choreographed. It's just people jumping in. There's crowds everywhere. And just the way they used the space and filled it up, I thought was very clever, especially when you then go under the the bleachers and you have that scene framing Darcy and Bingley through Lizzie's perspective from under the under the bleachers I I love that I thought that was really cool yeah it's really beautifully shot the I mean I love the BBC version for its accuracy in a way that how it um it's just like okay here are the dances because you had dancing masters and stuff so everyone knows the choreographed dancing it's like oh it's so beautiful how that's all done and it just it's it is a conversation but i do love i i do love the visual chaos but also the beautiful framing in the kira knightley version i think it makes it feel a little bit more middle class too yeah. You get the sense that these people aren't as sophisticated as what Darcy and Caroline are used to. Yeah, exactly. Like, they're a lot more casual, I suppose, in some ways, where it's not this highly structured, formal occasion. It's a, that's a country dance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're having fun. What is your take on how romantic that version is? Because it gets criticized a lot for being such a fantasy and not being historically accurate and, you know, Darcy's coming out of the fog half naked. It's interesting because I think that that was actually my favorite part, (laughs) which is strange for me, someone who adores historical accuracy. I actually, I really love the romance aspect and the kind of inaccuracies of the Kira Knightley version because it's almost like they're like, you know what? Screw historical accuracy at this moment. We want you to feel something. <laughs> and if we have to use yeah. modern shorthand, a uh, visual shorthand, I don't care. We're using it. <laughs> like we're pulling out all the stops so that way you get the feeling. At the same time, I love the BBC version, not just for the historical accuracy, but for the restraint. Because Hmm. it's so um, careful, it's so restrained that when, like, contact happens, it's like, oh, 
they touched. <laughs> that line I absolutely love that they added for it that's not in the book is when Darcy has that fencing lesson and he goes, I will conquer this. I shall. Because he's just, oh, his, that line, like, it just hits me right in the feels. And then also when he walks up to the house and he's just drenched, that, again, yes. is already so romanticized. This is not something that would ever happen in the book. And of you're course. just shocked. You're like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, because it's like they restrain it so much. He's always wearing all his layers, everything. He's just so perfectly buttoned up and everything. And then they're like, wow, bow. <laughs> and yeah. they're like, oh, oh, you wanted drenched shirt? <laughs> you wanted Colin <laughs> Firth drenched shirt? Curls everywhere? Yes, we give it to you. Here it is. <laughs> and it's um, of what I love so much about that particular scene. And yes, listeners, this is like the infamous drenched shirt Colin Firth walking through the fields thing <laughs> that, that people are like, is that they look at each other and it is deer in headlights where he looks like, oh God. And she looks, oh God. And it's like, <laughs> they just stare at each other. And then immediately they're repeating each other, like sentences. Like he's, he asks if her parents are okay twice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're well, they're fine. Everything's fine. He's like, oh, uh, excuse me. And he leaves. And she instantly is like, Ooh! Like, we need to go. We need to go right now. <laughs> and her aunt and uncle are like, okay, then. This is weird. Just to gush about the gardeners for a second in this version. I love how quick on the uptake they are. They're instantly yeah. like, he's into her. She's into him. Yeah. Okay, honey, we're going to just walk behind a little further than usual. Because, you know, we're so old. <laughs> we need to just walk That's slow. True. That scene where Darcy jumps in the water in the uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Um, when I watched it in the theater... I laughed at that so hard because it's like it's like a fan service, right? It's like a throwback to the Colin Firth version. Yeah, they were like, we know you love this. <laughs> yeah, and nobody else laughed. And I was like, <laughs> I, I was like such a terrible like Gamergate gamekeeper at that point because I was like, you're all here because it has zombies in the title. You're not even part of this fandom. Get out of here. Like, Which isn't fair because that movie didn't do well at the box office and I should be happy anyone came to see it. But still, I was like, how can you not get this joke? (laughs) Yes, you're like, how dare you? How dare you? I fully admit that um, I I was the weirdo who one of my friends hadn't seen the BBC version ever. And I was like, okay, we just have to watch this one scene. We have to watch this one scene. And she like had no context for it whatsoever. <laughs> but I made her watch Elizabeth arriving at Pemberley. And just like the, the carriage rounds the corner and there's the house and it's beautiful. Yeah. And my friend's like, oh, okay. And it's like, it's so <laughs> perfect. And she's like, is, is this your dream house? And it's like, yes. <laughs> I don't know what I'd do with a house that big. Probably run around and dance in it. <laughs> Choreograph el- elaborate dances. Like Fenris <laughs> in Dragon Age 2. Yes! Yeah, except it's like uh, five years later and there's still dead bodies everywhere. I'm like, you can't clean that up, bro? Come on. <laughs> okay, 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 um, <laughs> okay. Confession. Uh, I have written a fanfic 
in which they're not dead bodies, they're practice dummies that he strews around the house <laughs> to try and trick people and scare people. <laughs> oh my god. Because <laughs> he's just like, yep, there we go. Everyone thinks it's abandoned. They're expecting dead bodies. Blop. <laughs> that explains it all. I take back everything I said about Fenris. He's a perfect <laughs> elfin being. <laughs> I, look, I'm terrible because I love Fenris and Anders. I love them both. Uh, I'm an Anders girl all the way. Oh, Anders is good. He's a good boy. That was my, this is totally off topic, but when he blows up the church, like, I felt so betrayed and shocked. And like, one of those moments in a video game, you'll never forget. Like, I was like, what? I was the terrible person who was like, yep, I get it. I get it, man. I understand. Yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah. What else are you going to do? <laughs> it's like, you tried everything, my man. It's okay. I'll go and I'll save you from Sebastian. It's cool. <laughs> he may be Disney Prince handsome, but he hasn't stolen my heart. No. <laughs> Fuck you, Sebastian. I love Sebastian. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> I never even recruit him, even though I have the DLCs. <laughs> I fully admit, I, I recruit, I'll, I'll recruit him just because he's nice to Fenris. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, yeah, friend, Fenris needs more friends. <laughs> <laughs> I love talking about Dragon Age. <laughs> yeah, I feel so bad because despite my love for Fenris and Anders, every time I play Inquisition, just have to fall on Cullen's dick. God oh damn my it, god, <laughs> he's my one true romance. Yeah. Oh god, we're the same person. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I always feel bad because like I love Dorian as a character. I love him. He's fantastic. But then I'm like, but him and Bull, Iron Bull, together. Oh, you can't split that up. No, 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 no. That would be no. that would be monstrous. It'd be a crime. <laughs> So I'm just like, nope, they're they're together forever. I love them. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, but back to the, the Pride scene and Prejudice. Where, <laughs> <Brian> Prejudice? <laughs> where Darcy steps out of the fog. When you listen to the audio commentary by the director, he's saying like, Oh yeah, this is totally unreal. This is a total fantasy. The things he's wearing is totally inappropriate. And then the shot they got of the sun rising wasn't planned, of the sun rising like between their faces, and it was one of those like perfect coincidences. Yeah, and now it's the cover. It's the cover. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's that reminded me of something that uh, Charlotte Bronte always said that Jane's writing lacks passions. And I kind of, I'm like, in one way, I'm like, Charlotte, don't talk about my girl like that. And then in another way, I'm like, yeah, she, at the end, she kind of always drops the ball for me. Because there's only a few versions where there's a lot of really heartfelt dialogue that makes that final coming together really work. Like, Emma does this well, too. There's that line, right, where he's like, oh, if I loved you less, I could be able to talk about it more. And then also there's Wentworth's letter and persuasion that just stabs you right in the feels. But when there's just when she's just describing to me on the page like, oh, they're finally together now and everyone's happy, it, it almost feels unsatisfying in a way. Yeah, that's something that is uh, really difficult with Pride and Prejudice because there are some scenes after, like, the thing that really bugs me with a... Uh, Darcy and Elizabeth is that it's kind of a oh yes and she told him that yes she likes him and that he likes her and so I appreciate that the BBC version for kind of being where she's like I um 
yeah, I have feelings. I have, I, I have feelings. And he kind of just has this little bit of a smug smile, like, yes, got her. <laughs> and he kind of just starts talking about like, yeah, Lady Catherine told me about uh, how she came to visit you. And that's what made me think that you might be into me. Because <laughs> if you hated me, you would have said it. <laughs> And then it's like, they're kind of just talking about it. And they're suddenly like, the tension is gone. Because it's like, they understand each other. It's just her being like, yeah, I caught feelings. Okay, don't judge me. <laughs> I st- it's still, as much as I love the BBC version, it still doesn't compare to me to that moment. Yeah, the where, Kira where... Knightley version is so oh, romantic. And it's just, just when he's like swallowing, he's like, I love, I love I love you. He like says it three times. I'm like, oh, it gets like, me every time. Like he's trying. He's trying so yeah. hard. He does it. And you're like, that's my boy. That's Darcy, my boy. Um, uh, one of the things that I do miss that's in the book that they I haven't seen it done in an adaptation. And I get why, because it would just be really, really complicated is after they have that understanding and that proposal and they're secretly engaged and he tries to get back into the good graces of her family. It's like, he's really working towards it. And he's really trying. And that it's like, Mrs. Bennet is just cowed into silence. Cause she's like, Oh my God, I, this rich guy is being nice. I don't know what to do. <laughs> and she's just kind of like in shock the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh mr bennett's like huh he doesn't suck as much as i thought he did <laughs> okay and then darcy's like so i'm interested in your favorite daughter and he's like oh oh this is what this is about it's like oh it's so good <laughs> but it's like it, it is long it's like something that would really take a lot of work to work on it. When you get the catharsis of, say, the Kira Knightley perfect romantic moment, it's like, yeah. Just then cut. how can you keep the viewers? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. suspense. Just cut right down to uh, Mr. Bennett. They'd like so, so, <laughs> or in the uh, the uh, BBC version, Jane being like, what? Excuse me, what? <laughs> but Lizzie. You've always disliked him. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, Donald Sutherland, though, in the Kira Knightley version, it, it makes me cry every time when he starts to cry, and then he's like, "If there's any young men for Mary or Kitty, for heaven's sake, send them in." It ah, uh, and that makes such a good ending too, because I've seen the movie in German once, because I love all the old pronouns that they use in all the old language which is even, it's even more different to me in German than it is in English. And because that final scene of them at Pemberley was added on for the American audience, the dubbed versions always end there. Because that's the oh. original UK version, right? Where that's the last scene. Yeah. And it t- both of them totally work. I love it with the kiss at the end. And I, like, I love it either way. Yeah, what I really liked, and it, it's kind of a weird thing with the um, Kira Knightley version, is that Donald Sutherland and Kira Knightley, they copied each other's mannerisms a lot. Oh, yes. And in particular, they kind of like cover their teeth when they're smiling. Yeah. They cover their mouth a little. And it was, I thought it was the sweetest thing, just how they, they really worked towards making it like, yeah, they are related. They have similar mannerisms. And it kind of just, it really tightens that bond. And I thought that was a really 
sweet addition from the actors. Yeah. What do you think about Darcy bursting in on Lizzie when she's writing that letter and he just runs in through the door and he's like holding his gloves and she's like, oh, did you want some tea? And he's like, no, no. And then he just leaves. Because part of me is like, I love the momentum of that because pure dramas often don't have a lot of movement or action and just having that quick door opening, it, it adds like, something to the movie but at the same time i'm like he would never like he would never just burst into like a room (laughs) where a lady was in there (laughs) i'm conflicted about that scene always yeah it's i always love when someone does movement that's like i love the opening of the bbc version because of the movement where it's like start with the horse race boom go straight to elizabeth walking boom just like Hmm. movement after movement after movement so i love having the movement and the the fast pace like whoa (laughs) but um it is weird because it's darcy like you'd believe it of other characters but darcy's the one who'd be like kind of awkwardly hanging around and like can you just like announce me so that way i don't burst in on on someone (laughs) like you could see him bursting in on accident if he didn't think anyone was there like he just walks in it's like oh oh, oh, never mind (laughs) off i go (laughs) And I feel that way about the scene in the rain, too, because he's following her, not wearing a hat. Like he's a, these people are often not dressed right for the time. And yeah. it works because they're, they're drenched and the scenery is gorgeous and their conversations are so fast paced. And again, the energy of it is brilliant. But then I can't fault people for saying, oh, it, I prefer the BBC version because it's more historically accurate. And this one is more of a fantasy. Yeah, it's uh, it's weird because I do feel with the like, BBC version is my favorite, followed by Bride and Prejudice, which that might be weird, but that's because I just I nope, love it's so good. <laughs> I love how Bride and Prejudice just takes all the elements and they're like, we're not afraid to change things up and then add things and just twist things around. And it's like, I love that element of it. There's there's so much energy to it. That's it's so good. Also, dance numbers. <laughs> but um, <Yes. laughs> but yeah, I think that there's things that you can like about all of all of them. And while my preference will always, I think, due to nostalgia and the fact that this is, it's my first introduction to Pride and Prejudice. My second one was my dad reading it out loud to me as a bedtime story. Fun stories about mm. my dad reading bedtime stories to us. <laughs> like he read all of Pride and Prejudice. Like no wow. cuts, no uh, no shortened version, everything. And so <laughs> this was like a month of him reading like a chapter a day, a wow. chapter a night kind of thing. It was That's so commitment. good. Yeah, but uh, he also read The Hobbit to my brother and I. And this is the good part. <laughs> we're like all tucked into bed. We're listening. We're listening. And he'd like turn a page. Uh, they're singing a song. Flip, flip, flip. It's about a mountain. Uh, back to the back to the words <laughs> kind of thing. He, he wouldn't sing the song for you? He, he would wouldn't not, even read it? Nope. He just like <laughs> skipped the poems. <laughs> oh, that's so funny because I have a friend who also grew up with their dad reading it to them. And the dad would always come up with a melody and sing all the songs to them. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. Um, I know that my my friend who uh, her dad and her mom they would they switch off on reading and they read Watership Down to her huh. as a child. Yes, interesting. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, we have like this really weird fondness for Watership Down and in particular the the Frith mythology, all about the bunny god <laughs> and, and uh, Prince of a Thousand Enemies and all the world will be your enemy, oh. Prince with a Thousand Enemies. And it's like, gotcha. but she, she'll always talk about how her parents read that. It, it was like unabridged, goes through all the horrible <laughs> violence. And she's like, yeah. It's a good book. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> but um, yeah, Pride and Prejudice is like the one that I watched the BBC version as a kid. I watch it almost every year with my family over the holidays. So usually around Christmas time. And it's especially easy now that it's on Amazon Prime. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, oh, yeah, we could just watch it whatever we want. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's one of the ones that we'll, we'll quote things to each other from that version this is because it's such an essential part of my childhood that that even then it's like i do have my weird critiques about the bbc version and some of it is the like like i love the historical accuracy i love how careful it is with things how it's like jane is not modern hot she is regency england hot yes yes uh, same with elizabeth say everyone's wearing bonnets <laughs> um things like that that it's like yep that's yes really i just important. um i just discovered the youtuber karolina zebrowska <gasps> oh She's Polish. gosh yes <laughs> okay so she i only just discovered her and i'm trying to catch up on all the videos but she has a video so she has a background in um costume history and her video about the BBC version is really interesting to me because I didn't realize that it is the only version where they have the dog curls in the front that were really popular at the time. And no other version will do this because it's not, nobody would find that hot nowadays. And they do this with hair and makeup in every period drama you've ever seen, probably. It's very rare that they'll do accurate makeup and hair for the time period because it just doesn't test well with modern audiences and when she pointed that out i was like oh my god yeah it's those grecian curls that were popular then and you see them in all the pictures <laughs> yeah there's some um, story about that because where i live uh i live in new mexico which is in the southwest in america and uh they have like a bunch of they have a bunch of tax breaks for film companies to come film here and so a lot of Hollywood companies will come out to film in the desert and film their movies because it's cheaper. And they filmed this one movie. Uh, it had Daniel Craig in it. It was uh, Cowboys and Aliens. I haven't seen it. I still haven't seen it. <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to. <laughs> okay. But um, there was this one thing that uh, one of the professors at the local university, history professor, was brought in as a consultant to talk about outfits and stuff. And he talked about how, um, I think it was Olivia Wilde was the heroine opposite lead. And he talked about how her costume is really inaccurate for the time period that you want to cast her in. And they're like, yeah, but she won't look sexy if we don't have her in this kind of outfit. So he was like, yeah, they didn't listen to my consultation. (laughs) Yeah. And And I can find that very disorienting when the costumes aren't right with the hair and makeup. I'm like, I get that you have to do that. But still, when these details aren't right, even in like historical romance novels, like it it will take me out. I'll be like, no, that's not right. (laughs) You know? Yeah. The one the one way that I kind of get through it is that I'm like, it's fantasy Regency England. 
It's fantasy Regency England. Where's the unicorn? Let's get a unicorn up in this bitch. (laughs) And I'll, like, suddenly it's, like, different timeline or something. Like, the timeline split. That's what happened. We, 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 like... Our, our world went one way, but this world in this movie went another way. And this is the fashion now. And then it's like, that's how I have to get my head wrapped around it. So sometimes that's how I justify like historical inaccuracies in movies or romance novels or anything like that. I just say, uh, fantasy Regency England, uh, fantasy Everything's different. But I, I still can't figure out why Kira Knightley, why, and I tried to Google this, why the choice was made for her not to be wearing any headgear ever. Like she never wears a bonnet or a hat even when she's outside. And I'm like, no, 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 you're not dressed. You're naked now. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like you're dressed like a strumpet. You don't have a hat on. I just don't know why that why that is. And you see all the sisters together. And even the other sisters will wear hats and she won't wear a hat. Yeah, I, I don't know I don't if they know kind of, it might be just a way to visually distinguish her from the rest of the siblings. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. I mean, the, it sounds weird, but the, the way that it's really easy to distinguish, um, I mean, Lizzie and Jane and all the sisters in the BBC version is that Jane is blonde, like angelic, halo, golden blonde, and Elizabeth has black hair. And so the two of them stand out because everyone else is a brunette. <laughs> right. And That's so it's true. like, there's Jane, there's Lizzie, there's the other three. <laughs> Which I feel so bad because the other three are fantastic. <laughs> and I know the the director for the 2005 version he hates the empire waste so he said (laughs) he said the movie like a little bit earlier so the waist would be a little bit lower that's how he justified it and that's why caroline is the only one wearing the modern fashions and the high waists the only time that doesn't work for me is that spaghetti strap dress that she wears at the netherfield ball which is beautiful but not appropriate in any way (laughs) yeah it's like it looks more like a masked costume ball outfit like she's trying to be cleopatra or a greek goddess and yeah it's like not for a formal ball she needs to have at least cap sleeve (laughs) also another thing that um no nobody's gonna agree with me on this but team caroline when it comes to lizzie walking in (laughs) and she's like did you just see her hem is six inches deep in mud, which in the 2005 version they don't show because they don't want to um, dirty the costumes. But like she arrives completely dirty. and that version, she doesn't arrive with a hat. Her hair is down. I'm like, yeah, Caroline should be concerned. Team Caroline, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's the Caroline has a point. But also, you know, the only reason she's bringing it up is because she's a massive bitch who hates Lizzie. (laughs) Where it's like, on one hand, Caroline is right. So not the asshole. On the other hand, the intention behind this, totally the asshole. Yeah. And I I totally agree with making the two sisters one character as well. I think that's a totally fine choice to make. Absolutely. I mean, what's fun with having two sisters is that they can 
banter back and forth and be like, her hair. Right. Did you right. see the hem of her gown? And so they're they're playing <laughs> off each other. That's that's a great dynamic. That's true. But that's true. But in the case of a movie, you can always just have the one. You can have the one sister who's just really like, ugh, hey. this. <laughs> but she's so beautiful that actress too like i just love her um the one thing i love with the bbc version is that caroline bingley is so tall and then they put feathers on her they put feathers on the tallest woman in the room to make her even (laughs) taller it's like yes (laughs) this is a good choice (laughs) makes her look so awkward yeah it's like it I mean, it emphasizes the haughtiness, but it also just, it's so like, yeah, she's super fashionable. She wears feather headdresses. She's like always dressed in silk, rich colors. Like you're not going to see her in a plain muslin gown. That's right. Not, that's for poor people. Can you explain a scene to me that I've never understood? <laughs> so this okay. is in the 2005 version and it's right after Lizzie says, I'm very fond of walking, right? And then she separates from Darcy. They just met again at his house. But then again, no hedges. She just walks to the inn. And she doesn't tell her aunt and uncle where she's going. She just walks from there right to the inn by herself. Not appropriate. And then her aunt and uncle are already there. And he has beaten her there. And and they're like, oh, Lizzie, there you are. Darcy invited us for dinner tomorrow. And I'm like, how did? How are you not frantically looking for her? How, what? <laughs> uh, I mean, I put it down to film version cutting time, so that way, and also kind of showing like the gardeners are chill and they get Lizzie. Like they're like she's going to be fine. It's just she could take care of herself. Such a weird cut for me. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, it is weird. It's uh, I mean, it's kind of. It's done, I think, to establish that Lizzie is like not just going to be like, oh, you were kind of nice to me, so now I'm going to like you know sit with you. She's like, yeah, nobody. I'm going to go take a walk. Like, enjoy yourself. Right. And Darcy's like, right. but I was serious about being sorry and like being glad to see <laughs> you. I'm like, I guess I'll go to the inn and like talk to your aunt and uncle. <laughs> yeah, that it, it is a little weird, but I kind of chop. I kind of think it's just a. Uh, they only have so much time, so they're like kind of relying on the audience to bridge the gap or not right. really see the awkwardness. <laughs> right. Um. So something else that I think the 2005 version is very famous for is the sexual tension. Um, and it it does it so brilliantly, and it hits you in the feels so many times. Like when Lizzie looks down, and you suddenly see the shot of the two hands, and he's helping her into the carriage. You know, all these little moments that are is so charged, even though it's a period drama. It's yeah. just phenomenal. Yeah, I think that's like, what's really cool about it, the key thing that everyone's like, they're not wearing gloves. Their hands touched and neither of them are wearing gloves. It's skin right. on skin. Because even BBC version didn't go that hard. They, they, uh, <laughs> it was skin on glove, not skin on skin. That's a... That's a level of intensity that's, wow, <laughs> especially for period drama. But it's the kind of uh, sexual aspect to a movie that's so sophisticated 
And if you just show me like a sex scene in a movie of two actors grinding their bodies against each other, I I will skip through it. Like, I do not care. It's a waste of time for me. Like, I get nothing out of that. It feels like a sex scene in a movie is a lot like a fight sequence. If you like, this is something that I was interested in. I did stage combat for a while. And uh, pretty much the point of a fight sequence in my mind, if it's in a book a movie, uh, on stage, TV show, whatever. It is either to push the plot forward or to reveal something about the characters who are in the fight or both. And so, say, famous example of a fight sequence in a movie, uh, Inigo and Dread Pirate Roberts, Wesley, on uh, the cliffs, that fight sequence. Uh-huh. You learn so much about these two men via their fighting. They're bantering the whole time. And yes. you start learning more and more of like, all right, Inigo has done so much. He has studied everything, Agrippa, everything. He has studied. He has worked so hard. And Wesley has done the same thing. And that it goes from them like being serious to being playful. And they're actually almost acknowledging each other as you both were both equals in this. We are both good. And they respect each other. Yeah, it goes from them like and Yego kinda of being like, it's gonna be a death match, so I'm gonna let you take your take a, a rest, catch your catch your breath, because I'm gonna just slaughter you to huh, he's holding his own to he's holding his own. He's like giving me a challenge. And that reveals so much about the character. It also pushes the plot forward because you're like the Dread Pirate Roberts, at this moment, because you don't know that it's Wesley, is like, who wants to get up that cliff? Like, he's gonna do it. <laughs> he is absolutely determined. And and goes like, yeah, I'm getting paid to do it, but, you know, like, I kind of like this girl. I kind of feel bad for her. <laughs> and you learn a bunch about the characters, pushes the plot forward. It's a great fight sequence. And I feel that sex sequences should do something similar, where it's like, is it there just for titillation or are you learning something about these people? Uh, and I think romance novels do that really well, but I don't think, especially movies directed by men, they, I'd get nothing out of it. I get nothing out of like a hand gripping a sheet for five minutes. Like, <laughs> yeah, they're kind of like, but boobies though. We, we showed yeah, you the tits. Exactly. Like, yeah, you should, that, that's all that I needed to do. Right. <laughs> it's like, no, but, you, you may have shown me beautiful tits. They're lovely, truly. But I don't feel anything in my soul. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that That's the perfect way to put it. <laughs> I have a line written down that's one of my favorites. And it's from the Lizzie Bennet Diaries. And it's at the very end when Charlotte, who's such a fantastic character in that show. Oh, my God. Charlotte oh, so Lou is the best. <laughs> when she's comforting Lizzie. And she's going out to order food. And then Darcy walks in and Lizzie says, I thought you were Chinese food. That line is so funny <laughs> and so clever. And I, I just love it so much. I do love the adaptation. Where it's uh, a modern adaptation. They do like essentially vlog style. It's really entertaining. <laughs> it's like, this is really good. It's a good way to do a adaptation of something, put bring it to a modern era, and you still have the spirit of the thing remain true. Yeah. I thought mm-hmm. you were Chinese food. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I found out that the novel actually takes place between 1793 and 1795, but then Austin did revisions in 1811 to 1812 and then sold the book for like 110 pounds. It's like terrible. <laughs> they made so much money too. And I'm like, oh, girl, no. <laughs> oh, it sucks being a lady back in the day. Uh, you feel like it's a horrible injustice, but then um, Emma is, because of Pride and Prejudice, she kind of became famous <laughs> and everything. And what's so funny is that Emma is a, has a dedication to the Prince Regent at the time. It does? Uh, yeah, the first printing has a dedication to the Prince Regent. And uh, Jane Austen was not a fan of this man, but her editor was like, yeah. Like, her editor and publisher were like, yeah, you need to do it because he asked and he's kind of like the ruler of huh. our country. And it's just, just like, ugh, fine. Give him a dedication. I did not know that. <laughs> it's one of those, uh, it's like a weird thing that I learned. And it's like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so the very last note I have is I have to tell you about the Lawrence Olivier Greer Garson 1940s Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> Oh yes, I I've heard I've heard the tales of this one. The costumes are just whack. Like the whole movie is whack. It's like <laughs> take Pride and Prejudice and then put like a slapstick American twist on it. Like none of none of the accents are right. It starts off with like a carriage chase between the Lucases and the Bennets, and it's like so action packed, and it. Oh my god, I, the costumes, I can't even describe to you, it's like so frilly, it's like, almost like Regency mixed with Southern, like Antebellum, and they have these crazy bonnets and hats, and it's just such a shame that it isn't in color, because the only color reels at the time, they I think they only had like seven, and they were all used for Gone with the Wind, which is not a movie I like, I'm sorry, Pride Prejudice. That explains the Antebellum yeah. style, oh my gosh, they were probably sharing parts of their costuming. Maybe, yeah. It, uh. But, like, the dialogue is so cutting. And it's exactly Jane Austen's spirit. And there's so many lines in there that they've, that aren't even from the book, that are just brilliant lines that they've made up for this movie. And it's just so <laughs> snappy. And it's just, you know, all the leads going back and forth with each other. And nothing's even the dances aren't real. I think they're like waltzing, which I don't think they were waltzing back in Regency times. Um. Like, the waltz was a new dance and was you it? were it was a very new dance and it was um it was a sexy dance yeah people are very close yeah yeah you're you are like right up next to your guy or your lady and it's it's the sexy dance it was very risque and um Oh, gosh, I don't know when it was admitted at Almax, but it was like there were quite a few of the upper echelon ladies who were like, "That is too scandalous. We we yeah, cannot I, I have get that it in our fancy <laughs> ballroom." And now people are like, "Oh, it's so elegant and graceful and beautiful." Everyone's like, "The Venice waltz is sexy. It's not graceful. It's sexy." <laughs> The the change that they've made to it, which I absolutely love, is Lady Catherine de Bourgh is like a secret spy 
for Darcy. So he sends her in and they have that exact same conversation at the end where she's like, oh, will you promise me that you won't marry my or haven't given, you know, a promise of marriage to my nephew? And she's like, I will do no such thing. Get out of my house. Um, and you think it's just like the book. But then Catherine de Burke walks outside to her carriage and Darcy's there. And Catherine says, oh, yeah, she wouldn't budge. She's totally your girl. Like, you should go in there right now and marry her. So she was just testing Lizzie to make to, like, see if Dar if she was serious about Darcy. And then she sends her nephew in. I just find that adorable. Oh, that's a fascinating change. Yeah. Oh, that's it's really like good. redeems Catherine as a character. It's, it's cute. Yeah. I mean, I fully admit it's so much fun to... Um... Again, this is my family, where we'll go and we'll quote Lady Catherine, especially if someone, like, kind of butts it in a conversation. It's like, oh, what'd you say? And we'll be like, I must have my share of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> of course, like, every once in a while, it's usually my mom and I, but we'll be like, oh, the shades of Pemberley to be thus polluted. <laughs> and we'll just, like... It's a classic... We'll just run around and be super dramatic because Lady Catherine has some of the best dramatic lines where it's like, she's absurd and horrible. It's amazing. Also in the movie, when she like offers, when she's like, Charlotte, you need to practice playing the piano, but you can't do it here. You have to go to the servant's room. You won't disturb anyone there. And Charlotte's like, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so, oh, it's bad. She's. It's very interesting because it's uh it's like she and Mrs. Bennett are very similar characters. Uh -huh, it's just that uh -huh. Mrs. Mrs. Bennett isn't rich. Yep. <laughs> she doesn't have no, the bloodline, but they are so similar. They are obsessed with rank and privilege and everything else. <laughs> and marrying their daughters. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> They're both rude, and they want to marry their daughters. <laughs> Anything else that you wanted to say or had written down or? Ah, I can't really think of anything beyond the fact that it's like, because of Pride and Prejudice, we have things like uh, Brazen and the Beast by Sarah McLean and uh, Courtney Milan works. Anything that is vaguely historical, Regency era, though a lot of Courtney Milan's books are more Victorian. But anything like that, I think, is because Pride and Prejudice existed and people love it so much that they're just, like, yeah. inspired. So I think almost any historical romance that is set in Regency England was inspired by Pride and Prejudice. It has this amazing staying power. And that, honestly, if if someone has never read it, just somehow missed it, never had a, had a bit of Pride and Prejudice in their life, I highly encourage them to read it. I mean, my dad, as a 13-year-old boy from the Midwest, USA, that's like his favorite book. And hmm. if he and my mom, who is from Brazil, can both be like, yes, this is something that we can connect with and understand and love. I think that there's a universe universality to Pride and Prejudice. People should read it or watch a movie yeah. or something like that, or enjoy the Lizzie Bennet diaries. It's a great adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. It's like 
get get a little bit of pride and prejudice in your life. <laughs> and I think a criticism I hear of it that mostly comes that that isn't educated in any way, and it mostly comes from boys who resent girls liking Pride and Prejudice is like, oh, you're just obsessed with these perfect guys who aren't real in these novels. And I'm like, th their faults are the title of the book. Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> they're not perfect. Yeah, it's, yeah, and that's kind of the point. It's, um, yeah, I mean, every single character has a flaw of some kind. And some people, it's like, you under, you like, their flaws are something that they can work with work against sometimes it's a virtue as well like jane is such a nice person which is a good thing but it's also a bad thing because she's like she's so nice that she kind of is like gets stepped on a lot it's yeah she, i found her frustrating i i like her a lot now um but i found her frustrating when i first read it she gets her heart broken so many times because she's just like, oh, well, I guess that's just how it is and how it's going to be. And it's like, a, Jane, they did you dirty. You you should be mad. And she's like, no, it's okay. It's like, it's not okay. <laughs> and Lizzie, of course, is very prejudiced where if someone crosses her bad side, she's like, fuck you. You're in the bad box forever now. Yeah. And... <laughs> Bingley, it's like, again, he's nice, but he doesn't really have a backbone. Uh, Darcy, he's a good guy. He really is, but he is shy. He's aloof. He knows that he's a, like, a great person. Not in the, like, oh, I'm a good person who does, does good things, but it's like, I am someone with power, with privilege, and I work hard. I know my virtues. And... So he does look down on people. He is very proud and he kind of gets a little haughty. Yeah. And so it's like, it's not that they're perfect people. It's that they're people who are flawed, who try to be good and recognize their mistakes. And yeah. that has mm -hmm. a great appeal where it's someone who recognizes their need to change and does it without any expectation of a reward at the end. No, that's a perfect way to wrap it up. Um, <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> tell us tell us what you want to plug. Tell the people about all your things. All right. So I am on a podcast. It's currently on hiatus. It's called Red Light Library. We talk about erotica, usually stuff that we find on Amazon. So far, we're try to like restock the library shelves, find things that not, aren't just like, haha, ain't that funny, that, that, that a funny kink, and more of a, this is legitimately something that if you are into this, this is a good thing. Currently, the guy who produces that, Gavin, he is working on a daily podcast for all of September. It's called Spooktember Pod. And it's all about getting ready for Halloween in October. Oh, that sounds cute. It's a lot of fun so far. I've recorded an episode that I'm going to send him about one of my Halloween traditions, October traditions. So I might be on that. Um, you could follow me on Contra Perry Chat at, on t at Twitter. So it's C O N T R E. P-A-R-R-Y-C-H-A-T. And that's it. <laughs> Perfect. 
Thank you so much for being on. I'm so glad we made this work. Oh, yeah, me too. I love any excuse to ramble about Pride and Prejudice and Jane Austen (laughs) and Dragon Age. (laughs) I'm sorry, everyone. (laughs) No, that's quite fine. And we'll see you all soon. Goodbye.